The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Luke 4, beginning at 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And the quote here is from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they they asked. And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in our hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. For I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, and yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, but not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right away through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people, and they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In that synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God? Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. This is God's holy word. 
Long ago in my first semester of college, I was already dating Carol, who became my wife. And when we had weekends home together from college, we tended to alternate attending each of our churches of origin. Mine was Baptist, hers was Presbyterian, eight or ten miles apart. We did that for a while, and as I remember, her pulpit, as we say, the pulpit was vacant at the Presbyterian Church, meaning its minister had taken another call and had already left, an older man who'd had a fine ministry and was highly regarded, had gone to be a chaplain at a college, actually. And so they were looking for a new pastor. And in the late fall, or almost near December, I believe it was, in 1967, they found one. The arrival of this man, I did not know, would be a landmark in my life. In order not to praise an individual, I'll just use his first name. It was Frank. Frank did not seem all that young to me. I was 18. You know, when you're 18, everybody looks old. And Frank, as I go back and calculate it, was actually, I was surprised when I figured it out this week, that he was 30. When he came, I'm serious, he was 30 years old, This was his second pastorate. And he came to this church and created a sensation. Not a bad way, but a good way. Because Frank was incredibly gifted by God for preaching. I had never heard anything like it. I had heard patient and fine Bible teaching in in my church of my youth that nurtured me and and was excellent in, in every way. But I'd never heard anything like this. This man was so passionate and compelling and articulate in the pulpit that he just riveted people. And he made you feel as if your Christian faith was a thing of of such invincibility that you could go out and stamp on Satan five times before breakfast. If he would, for example, speak about the mission field and people being called to missions I'll tell you what, I knew I wasn't the only one in the place that was about ready to leap up and sign up for the next boat to New Guinea to be a missionary. He had that effect as he opened God's Word. This was a church that was healthy and had good attendance before he came. Very soon after he came, there was a problem. You not only couldn't find seats on Sunday mornings and they were putting up folding chairs everywhere, you couldn't always find a decent seat on Sunday evening. When did churches have that problem? People responded, the church grew, and God did some amazing things. Well, I would say that Frank's powerful preaching of the Word of God was a factor, not the only one, but a factor in, in turning me, as God, I think, was already turning me from my Baptist origins to cross the fence to the Presbyterians. And maybe there was a little bit of unworthy thinking on my part in that because I was young and I was feeling, am I or am I not called to be a pastor? What does that mean? You know, how do you know that? And here was this dynamic young man. And, and as I think back now, I, I have to admit, and I kind of blush to admit it, that there was a fair degree of jealousy or pride in me that looked at this man and said, I want to be like that. I want to do that. And you say, well, that's not a very worthy motive for being called to the ministry, just to be like somebody else. But if it wasn't worthy, I think God used it perhaps for a good end, among other things, in putting me into ministry. 
Well, I'm looking at another 30-year-old preacher who set a congregation on its ear. And it was, of course, in his hometown, the village of Nazareth, a long time ago. Jesus had spent his entire youth and young manhood there and then had been off. Now there's some time has elapsed, we're given to believe here in, in Luke 4, between his baptism. He's obviously already been preaching about the countryside. Verse 14 gives you that sense of at least some months, perhaps, of ministry. And now he comes back to the hometown. And his fame sort of precedes him. People have heard, well, he's even doing miracles. And of course, what do they think? Let's see one. We hope he comes here and, and does a few. And stop and think for a minute. Jesus had lived in that town. We believe he was without sin, even in his entire life before his public ministry. Think about it. If you had lived and interacted in a small town with someone who presumably was a tradesman, a carpenter, who had no sin, stop and think about that. What kind of a businessman did that make him? Did he deliver a good product when he promised it? Did he fix the roof, and if it leaked, he came back and fixed it so it didn't leak? Did he have integrity? Was he respected? Of course, all those things. He had to be regarded highly by these people just for his character. And now this new thing, his fame is going all over Galilee. And we read that news about him spread over the whole countryside, and everybody praised him. Hardly a discouraging word at this point. What made Jesus a remarkable preacher? Well, you have to, I guess, look at his sermons and try to understand that, but they were well organized, they were concise, they were to the point, there were lots of pictorial descriptions, his doctrine rang true with the rest of the Bible, he showed compassion for people, for the weak and the broken, and yet he could be as bold as a lion if he was standing against someone who was rebuking the truths of God. I just read the other week one man who commented on the Gospel of Luke and the characteristics of the Gospel. Each of the Gospels has its own, you know, sort of different emphases and styles written by, down, of course, by different individuals. And this man called Luke, I'd never heard this before, the Gospel of Amazement. And what he meant was, and we see it in our text, that everywhere Jesus went, there were these strong reactions. People were knocked out of their senses. They were amazed. They were stunned. And there were just never, you know, neutral reactions to him. I hope this text today would help us understand that the gospel of Christ routinely does provoke strong reactions. I think we need to be reminded of that as we practice our faith and even live it and hopefully verbally represent it to families or friends or in the wider society because it will get reactions. And sometimes we're very surprised at those reactions. We think, oh my goodness, why did that person react so strongly to my just implying something about the Lord? Well, let's read this text and maybe we'll find out. Because the one we call Savior and Lord definitely did not end up being the hometown hero of Nazareth. To begin with, I want to stress the preaching of Christ as it's exhibited in these texts here. Jesus was, first and foremost, a Bible preacher. You shouldn't forget that. You say, well, he was the Son of God, he was the Messiah, he was the Redeemer. Yes, but in terms of activity, what he was doing, he was a preacher. 
In other words, he took the Word of God, which, of course, for him at this point was the Old Testament, some portion of the Old Testament, opened it up and said, here's what's in it, here's what it means, and what it means to you. We call that expounding the Word. We look for expository sermons, meaning the preacher doesn't come and say to himself, well, I've got something to say to these folks. I wonder if there's a Bible text that's somehow related to it. So I can go and tell them what I want to tell them and hang a text on it so they might think it has something to do with the Bible. That's not expounding the Word of God. Expounding the Word of God is going to a text and basically starting by saying, I don't know exactly what this text is going to speak, particularly in its applications to the people I'm going to address, but I'm going to study it and try to find out and bring it forth with the help of God. Now, there were hundreds of men in Israel and and in Galilee in Jesus' time, certainly in Jerusalem, who were certified Bible teachers and preachers. Many of them had degrees. They had been students of some great rabbi. Paul was student of the rabbi Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous in his day. There isn't any famous rabbi we know of that Jesus studied with. We're not aware that he uh, stirred that far out of Nazareth to actually become the student of any great Bible scholar. And yet, he knew what the Scripture said and knew it in a way that many of the scholars didn't even understand. I'd make this comparison for illustrative purposes. If you would compare the Bible scholars of Jesus' day in Israel to botanists, particularly a botanist who specializes in trees. Imagine a botanist that that knows all you'd ever want to know and then some about every kind of tree. He can look at a tree and say, I know what that is. It's an elm, it's a a walnut tree, it's an oak, it's a willow. And then they'll tell you about the bark and the root system and the leaf structure and how that tree particularly processes photosynthesis goes on in it and so on, and does it, is it a tree that likes acid soil or more neutral? And they can tell you all that specialized stuff. Well, that's what the rabbis were like in those days. They could tell you all the specialized Scripture minutiae that you ever wanted to know, and they just loved to dig in there and get into all those little details and, and debate them. But here's the amazing thing. Along comes Jesus, who's a big picture man. And he says, you know what, folks, uh, you who know trees, could we talk about God's purpose in making a forest? And these people say, what's a forest? I never heard of a forest. What's that? And they just couldn't talk about it. They couldn't focus in the same way that Jesus was focusing on the unified message of the Word of God, whether he was preaching from Habakkuk, from Genesis, from Isaiah, from Joshua. He was looking at the unified message of the Old Testament and saying, God is saying one thing. I am going to bring salvation available to the world through my Redeemer who will come. Now, that's not to say that the name of Jesus is evident in every Old Testament book, but markers and signposts and landmarks and and everything are there in the Old Testament. I learned a little rhyme in, in a freshman college Bible class that same semester I was talking about a moment ago that I'm sure I learned other things, but I remember this distinctly from having learned it that semester. It's a very simple little, as many of you have heard it, that talks about the unity of the Old Testament and the New. And it says that the New, the New Testament that is, 
is in the old concealed, while the old is in the new revealed. That's tremendous wisdom. And it tells you about the unity of the Bible. And that's the message Jesus was preaching. The whole written revelation from God is there to tell you God is going to bring a great message of salvation, and it will come through his Redeemer. And, of course, he began to say, I am that person. Now, another great thing about Jesus as a Bible preacher, still under this first point, is is what verse 14 says, that he was preaching in the power of the Spirit. There was an anointing on him, and we saw that in the baptism. Remember that that, uh, this baptism in the Spirit was what was so important for Jesus in the Jordan River, not water. Mystery of the Trinity there, Father, Son, Spirit. Why does the Son need the Spirit? Hard to explain, but he does. And Jesus, the 10-year-old, and Jesus, the 20-year-old, and Jesus, the 30-year-old, were, were the same man, of course, growing up, and he was the Son of God from the very beginning, and yet there was this endowment, this, this opening up of things that probably were veiled to him to some extent as a young man, and then shown to him that he would fully have the Spirit of God poured through him. And that's the text that he opened up, Isaiah 61. There's every indication that he chose that text, a great text. And the first words it says is, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me. There's something very important here. Jesus was speaking as a preacher the Old Testament written word of God. But he was never coming and saying, I'm the great scholar. Take it from me. I've got a Ph.D. and a couple other D's and a couple other letters after my name. Take it because I'm the scholar. This is true. No, he came and said, here is what God has spoken, and his Spirit is powerfully showing me this. If God's Word grips you at any kind of point in your life, any individual sermon or any regular ministry, don't credit the speaker's oratory or his learning, because that's not what's doing it. There are very smart preachers. I'm at the back row of the class for smarts. There are very smart preachers who are as dry as dust, and people walk away and say, what was that? It didn't mean anything. If after study and opening a text of the Word of God, God grips you, God convicts you, God encourages you, say, the Spirit of God was attending His Word today. And it takes that, a fire in the bones of the one who speaks that comes from the Word. And let me tell you, I'm just really starting to learn this after decades you can study, 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 study to prepare. I know my fellow preachers will, will agree with me and say, oh, I've studied this text. I've, I've looked at the meanings of every word in Hebrew and Greek and sentence structure and tried to dissect this, and I've read 12 commentaries on Luke. And I've really studied. But the thing you haven't done, perhaps, is to beg God on your face, oh, Lord, You want to say something about this text through me. Will you say it and get me out of the way 
and take hold of your people and speak it in power. And let me tell you, there are times, and I can't tell you I experience this every moment all the time that I preach, but there are times, there are times when you're conscious of it that, that just thrill you because not boastfully in any sense. In fact, it's a very humbling thing. You stand back and you almost feel like you're another person standing next to the person who's talking and you're kind of amazed at what's coming out of your own mouth. You say, I I don't see how that got put together. It must be the Spirit of God. Now look at what the manifesto for Bible preaching is here in this text that Jesus announced because it too tells us about him as a preacher. I won't break it down and go into a lot of it, but there are four things in here real quick. That he came to preach good news to the poor, freedom to prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, and release for the oppressed. Now, some love this text because they'll say, oh boy, here's the root of the social gospel. You know, Jesus came to empty the prisons. Jesus came so everybody could have a square meal and wouldn't be poor. Jesus came to heal everybody. Jesus came, by the way, the word oppressed is the same meaning as abused. It means people who are crushed in their spirit, probably by someone else's abusive or power treatment of them. Well, what this is saying, I think, has to be understood in a a less than literal way. It's a spiritual way. He's looking here at spiritual poverty, spiritual captives, spiritually blind, and spiritually oppressed people. We're all locked up tight, and they don't even understand what their need is or their problem is. But when they would hear the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God, God will enter their lives, and it'll be just like the wardens. You know, if there's one master switch in a prison that you could flip. I don't know if there is such a thing, but and every door opens. God is going to do that kind of thing, and he was doing it through Jesus there, Jesus the preacher. And the Bible says, how will they ever hear it unless someone preaches? I didn't write this in my notes, but somehow God encourages me to ask today, who will be the young men in this congregation who are going to preach? You know what? I'm getting old. I'm not going to do this forever. Who will be the young men who God will call and lead to study his word and preach it in the power of his spirit in the next generation? I pray For those young men without knowing their names, I pray some of them are here today, and God will lead them and equip them. Now, secondly, quickly, we want to see here that Bible preaching fatally offends religious complacency. This is verses 20 to 30. This is the incident in Nazareth Nazareth Synagogue. And Jesus went there, he read this text from Isaiah, and then he said this utterly remarkable thing, which we would come to expect from him, folks, I am the one through whom this is going to happen. Now, you know what? Look at your text and see that wasn't what got anybody upset. When he said in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, what happened next? Everybody spoke well of him. They said, oh, yeah, you're a great prophet. We think, yeah, this is good. We're really glad. We're really proud to have a great prophet come from our town. And then look what Jesus does in 23 and following. I have to say it almost as if he sticks a sharp stick in their eye because he knows these people are complacent and smug in their ancient way of religion. And so he deliberately provokes them by saying, prophets don't have honor in their own country. Let me tell you something. 
And he tells them about Elijah and Elisha, two great prophets, verses 25 and following. And he says, do you know what happened in Elijah's time? There was severe famine. Who did Elijah go to whose household he particularly blessed in terms of an abundance of food? Well, you and I read this, and we, we don't figure it out, because a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon means nothing. One word planted there tells you what that means, Gentile. This woman was not an Israelite. Elijah went in the great famine, and whose house got the blessing of God? A Gentile woman's house. They knew that that's what he was saying. And then Elisha, the other great prophet, and he says, all these lepers in Israel, guess who got healed and cleansed? Naaman, the general of the Syrian army. Gentile. Do you see why this was a sharp stick in the eye? Jesus was saying, don't you understand, God isn't coming to just reinforce you in your complacent religion that you think he loves you so much and you are doing so great. No, he's coming to bring a great, powerful work of salvation that will be to all people in the world, and guess what? He's already prominently done it to Gentiles. It's following that. Do you see in the text, verse 28, what does it say? that all the people in the synagogue were furious. Remember, they'd been ready to give him the key of the city. You're great, Jesus. We love you. We don't care if you say this is all fulfilled in, in your hearing today through me. Okay, we're all right with that. As long as you know we're God's great people, we're God's fine people that cling to the law, and God loves us and thinks we're just fine. And he starts talking about Gentiles being saved. Do you see the 180-degree amazing turn? What does it say they did? They didn't just say, stop preaching and don't come back here anymore. They rose up physically in a body, manhandled him out of the synagogue, and they were going to throw him off a cliff. Unbelievable. And in fact, we don't actually know how he got out of that. Verse 30 says he walked right through them and went on. Was there a miracle involved there? How did he escape that kind of fury? Don't know. It just says he did. He walked on his way. God allowed him to get away safely. Wow. You know what? John 1.11 predicted this, didn't it? It says there, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, he gave power to become children of God. What's the lesson? The lesson is the outer facade of religion and religious complacency makes people self-centered and unaware of what God wants to do in his salvation. And it makes them furious when you tell them that something much greater has to happen to them. Now, some of you know this from firsthand experience. You, you came to Christ, perhaps, in young adulthood or older time in life, and you were excited. You received Christ as your Savior, and this to you was a great thing. And, and what did you do? I mean, I've heard many, many reports over the t- years of my ministry of people who said, well, the first thing I have to do is go back and tell mom and dad. And go tell my sister. Go tell my brother. I'm a Christian! Great news, Right? And mom says, what? You were baptized. You were raised in the church. Do you mean you think I'm not a Christian? 
What, is, what kind of cult did you get mixed? Is it that Westminster cult I heard about that you're mixed up in? What is this? And some of you know this brick wall of family offense that you meet when you talk about real heart Christianity to good, moral citizens who pay their taxes and maybe frequently go to church and say, who do you think you are? You're a Christian now? Yes, because I've met the all-sufficient Savior who changed me completely from the inside. And mere organizational, institutional religion that feeds my pride and, and gives me an outer facade of something will not satisfy God. You will meet bitter offense if you come to believe that. Now thirdly today and finally, I want you to see how Bible preaching is known for the enemies of God that it awakens. Got a little aside assignment for children. If you're losing attention span, here's something you can do. Take your Bible or your mom and dad's Bible, turn to the maps in the back. Find the New Testament maps. Some of you adults will do it too, that's okay. Find the little round lake called the Sea of Galilee and look on the northern edge of it and see the village of Capernaum. 25 miles downwards to the left, you'll see Nazareth. This will give you a picture of where we're talking about. Jesus now moves his base to what will become the new base, Capernaum, village of Peter, a fishing village. Some of us have been there. Capernaum's a beautiful place. One of the thrills of it is that you can actually stand in within the ruined walls of a, I'm not sure what century, synagogue that is thought to be either the second or third synagogue built on top of the actual spot of this synagogue where Jesus went. That's pretty thrilling to know that you're standing on a spot where Jesus worshiped and drove out a demon. Well, what did he do there? He got more reactions now, verses 31 to 37, of amazement. He preached. He spoke with authority. This time something very demonstrative happened. A man who knows what, what this man was like. I don't know what kind of behavior he had before this. Maybe people thought he was a little strange. Maybe he talked to himself or muttered. I don't know. But all of a sudden, he screamed out in the middle of the service. Twenty years ago, I had a mentally unbalanced woman come in to a service. I won't say her name. Let's say her name was Jane. That wasn't her name. She stood in the back and entered. We already knew about this woman. And she said, I, the Lord God, Jane... Declare that I must be heard. I was thankful for elders who knew their role. And we gently but firmly removed her. But I can imagine a little bit what happened in this service as this man stood up. And was it the man speaking or the spirit speaking? Ha! Jesus of Nazareth, you think you're so great. What are you here for? I know what you want. You want to destroy us, you holy one of God. And Jesus cast out that spirit. I read you both of these incidences, not just to see the movement in Jesus' life away from Nazareth to Capernaum, but to see this amazing irony. The neighbors of Jesus who knew him for 30 years could not comprehend him or trust him or believe in God's role being worked out in him. But demons, the spirit of fallen angels, had a 100% accurate understanding and full comprehension of who he was 
and what he had come to do. Isn't that amazing? Now, the Bible doesn't apologize for demon possession. 21st century people look back and say, oh, we know those primitive people. They thought every illness was caused by a spirit, blah, blah, blah. Luke was a physician, a good one, a smart one. He knew the difference between illness and disease and demon possession. And he was not so dumb as to not get that right. Yes, it was a rare thing, even in the first century. We see it a lot around Jesus simply because it's, it's a lot like crows clustering, you know, on a carcass. Demons came around Christ because they recognized the presence of the supernatural God in a figure of a man in their arena. There's somewhat of the same thing today. Missionaries in various primitive places will tell us uh, many very credible and unexplainable reports of demonic phenomena when the gospel comes to a culture which for a long time has lent credibility to or even worshipped evil. When the gospel begins to come there, demonic things happen that can't be explained. We don't see it so much in America. The gospel's been here a long time. But demons recognize Christ. James 2.19 says even the demons believe, that is, they believe there's a God. And they believe that Jesus was from God. They didn't believe he was a Savior, but they believed he was from God. And James 2.19 says they believe this and they shudder. I compare this to what happens about, um, not quite this time of year, a little later when the wasps, the paper wasps get to build their little nests in the nooks and crannies around your house. Does this happen to anybody besides me? And I get out the handle of the rake and stand back as far as I can and poke that thing down on the driveway, and it falls, and, of course, the wasps boil out, and I've got my can of Raid, and I go, and then they really boil out, and I run in the other direction. That's That's what was happening here. Jesus came, and the fallen angels knew who they were dealing with, and they knew what he was there for to destroy the dominion of Satan, and they hated him because they brought darkness and confusion and ruin for human souls, and they knew that he brought light and peace and wholeness. And they didn't want it. Well, folks, today Jesus was not the hometown hero they expected in Nazareth. And the simple moral is don't be surprised if your faith in Christ meets hostility. I hope they're not going to throw you off a cliff, but you will meet real resistance from family, from co-workers, people who will shun you, mock you behind your back perhaps, only because perhaps they know you go to church every Sunday. They'll recognize there's something about you and say, that's not for me, and I actually set my teeth against it. Christ predicted in Matthew 10:36 a man's enemies would be those from his own household. This is what he was talking about. But all authority from the Spirit of God had filled this man who came to preach the great news from God. And as the model preacher, he showed us how the Word of God leaps to life when people believe in him by the so-called foolishness of God's Word being preached and believed. Men and women can be liberated from the things that oppress them, from the blindness they've been walking in. They can be new people. I don't know many, many of you very well. I know quite a few of you, but not all of you. And some of you are almost total strangers. I don't know 
what's going on in your life. If I asked you what do you need most today, some of you would say, oh man, just a big tax refund. Or, or uh, maybe you'd say, I need to find a husband. I need to get a better job. I need to somehow get through college. I need to be liberated from this awful habit that has its clutches on me. Well, let me tell you, as little as I might know you, I can tell you this. What you really need more than anything else is to have your eyes open and your trust to clasp hold of the grace of God in Jesus Christ to cleanse you and make you new in a powerful way. He did it in this day. He's doing it today for all who believe and come to him by the cross. Our Father, we ask today that we would see this power that you set loose in the world by your written word and your spirit, that it would touch many, not to the glory of some preacher. Woe betide the fame of preachers. There's one preacher who needs to be famous, and his name is Jesus. Our Father, I pray for someone who needs to do business with him, who's sitting in smug complacency like those folks in Nazareth who thought they had it made. They had the top religion, and here was their native son, and and he was going to make their village famous. And then they were ready to kill him because he implied that God would save anybody, any kind of person who came to him in humble faith. Do this work in our day. And we thank you that we know you are. In Jesus' name, amen.